Well, welcome to Liturgy. It's good to be with you all. Um, as most of you who are familiar with Vox, uh, you know that we value having diverse voices uh, in our homilies, and in particular those that are within the Vox community. And so this morning, uh, we're very grateful to have one of our very, very own, uh, Naomi Jackson, and she'll open the scriptures up for us. So welcome, Naomi. Well, thank you. I'm going to get situated for a second and uh, pontificate because being back here is bringing up some emotion and it's overwhelming and it's happy and to just be in the presence of community to sing together again it just softens the heart it i can't open my laptop hold on i've also got this really long skirt on today i forgot how long the skirt was and so you know this is just this is what it means to be back live. And all of the feelings are all happening all at once for me right now. Um, but I am grateful and I'm excited to talk about Solomon today. And I'm excited to be back. And I'm excited to be in community, even if it's just a little microcosm of what our community looks like, to just have a little bit of it back. It just does the heart so much good. So thank you. Um, I'm particularly excited to talk about Solomon this week. Solomon is a favorite of mine in the, in the Bible. So you heard our scripture reading from 1 Kings 3, 9 through 12. But during this homily, I'm going to be bouncing around a little bit. I'm going to be referencing several texts that cover the life of Solomon in 1 Kings, as well as Ecclesiastes. We're going to jump over to Deuteronomy. It is going to be a wild, fun time. And so we're going to go to bed on a journey, but I'm fascinated, like I said, with the figure of Solomon, the chosen son of David. He's the builder of the temple, the only king of Israel to rule in a time of relative stability and peace. And above that, and along with that, he's an artist, a writer, a visionary, and He's one who left us with several key wisdom texts in the Jewish and Christian canon of scripture. And so this is kind of where his journey begins in 1 Kings 3. God comes to him um, in a dream and asks and says, whatever you want, ask of me. And his sole request to God is that of a discerning mind with which to govern his people. Solomon is young. He knows he is inept. He knows this people belongs to God and not to him. And it is with that understanding that he doesn't ask for wealth or power or fame, but for wisdom. The text says discernment and understanding of mine. Solomon says, I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And from the origin of this request, Solomon seems to understand what his relationship is in orientation to God. And by extension, he's already learned the first step. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And you'll see this phrase often repeated throughout wisdom literature in the Bible, specifically in Proverbs, Psalms, Ecclesiastes. Fear, or yirah, it means reverence, respect, but also some genuine fear and terror. Solomon was a king. 
to a people who already had a king in their God. This is, a, this is God's holy people whom he brought out of slavery and subjugation. And so the allowance for a political king came with specific instructions and stipulations. So these can actually be found in Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. And this is included, but not limited to, not acquiring excessive wealth, gold and silver, not entering into excessive marriages, and avoiding relations and proximity to Egypt from where they had once been slaves. Most importantly, among these stipulations was a love and a reverence and devotion to God's law. So, with that in mind, here is God offering Solomon his heart's desire, ask and I shall give you. And a strange thing happens after God hears Solomon's request for wisdom. God invents the first rule of improv comedy. He gives him a yes and. So verse 11, God said to him, because you have asked this and you have not asked for yourself long life or riches or for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, I do now according to your word. Indeed, I give you a wise and discerning mind. No one like you has been before you and no one like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked both riches and honor all your life. No other king shall compare with you. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your life. Yes, and not only does Solomon receive what he asked for, he gets what he didn't ask for. And that is where my fascination with Solomon begins. Because what an interesting, interesting predicament. Why? So this is, so the life of Solomon is a great jumping off point to study the wisdom texts of the Old Testament because they run the gamut depicting the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. So think of highs. I think of the book of Ruth, the book of Esther, Song of Solomon, and then the lows. Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, Job, and there is so much more in between. We actually see that kind of high and low, rising and falling motion in the very life of Solomon. And I'll point out a couple places where we see this. First, in the building and the dedication of the temple. This can be found in 1 Kings uh, books 5 through 8. And then secondly, in the building centers of idol worship that can be found in 1 Kings 11. So we'll start with the high. Building the temple was a huge deal. This honor was withheld from David, the man after God's own heart, because David ruled with violence and bloodshed to make make his reign. And so it's for that reason that God withholds the building of the temple from him. But while David wasn't able to build the temple himself, he did as much as he could to prepare, including buying and storing materials and training Solomon up in the ways of the Lord. Solomon, in my opinion at least, seemed to inherit 
a great deal of his father's artistic temperament. David was famous for his songs and poems, many of which fill the book of Psalms, another wisdom text. He famously danced in a loincloth through the streets as the ark was being brought into Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 6. His cries to God are often punctuated with hate for his enemies and a longing for God's justice. They are fierce, passionate, emotion-filled songs and poems. David's artistic temperament could be chaotic and over-the-top at times, but his heart was fully devoted to God. But Solomon is a little different. And we can just look at the temple and see an example of that. This temple, this ornate, finessed, cedar, stone, overlaid with gold, overlaid with gold. Cherubims, palm trees, lilies, pomegranates, latticework, the, the gamut. A very fun read. I actually love reading the description of the temple uh, found in chapters 5 and 6. Then jump on over to Song of Solomon and you're just going to get smacked in the face with so much gorgeous imagery. It's beautiful, elaborate, sophisticated artistry that comes together in the highest of high places, the temple. And Solomon... After building the temple, he discovers like he is really, really good at building things. So he builds a lot. After he builds the temple, he also builds himself a house, a house for his wife. He builds the Milo, the Wall of Jerusalem, Hazor, Megiddo, Gezer. He builds stores for his chariots, a fleet of ships. He acquires a fleet of horses and chariots in a trade deal between Egypt and Kuhn. Israel and Judea become a hub for the business of Solomon. And Solomon becomes famous for his wisdom and wealth. The text in the book of 1 Kings 10, 14 through 29, gives us some key clues into the political and economic patterns that would have been present at this time. Mainly, the, mainly I'm referring to the acquisition of horses and chariots between Egypt and Ku. So, I want to take a quick history break and uh, place this a little bit from what we know. So, in the ancient world at this time, there are two roads. The Via Maris, um, which means by the sea, and the King's Road. These are two major trade routes that connect Egypt to the south and Mesopotamia to the north. Well, guess which kingdom they run right through. Ever wonder why Canaan, why Israel is such a disputed land in the time of the biblical patriarchs and kings? The land itself, it's not particularly resource rich or suited to massive cultivation, but it is geographically smack dab in the middle of two, the two big powerhouses of the Bronze Age. And as far as I can tell, this is a big reason why this land was such a hot spot for chaos. Whoever controlled this strip of land could effectively control the access to some of these major trade routes. And Israel, this nation, this people set apart by God, was created to be a shining light to the world, with God as their king. 
And I think that for a time, Solomon understands this dynamic and deals with it well. The text tells us in 1 Kings 10 that Solomon's wealth and power and wisdom are all a credit to who God is. God is known because of the deeds of Solomon. So here's what changes. Solomon had many wives and concubines from other nations who worshipped other gods. As a king, he most likely had these marriages through political alliances. But the text says he loved these women. And the law forbade intermarriage with other nations specifically because of the inclination that it would bring to follow other gods. The text tells us because he loved his 700 wives and his 300 concubines, that he made accommodations for them and built up high places for the regional deities that they worshipped. But not only that, Solomon also participated in this worship. And just like that, Solomon loses sight of the goal, and his heart doesn't belong to God and God alone. He forgets or maybe ignores what God has told him to keep his statutes and commandments. And if a king cannot keep his heart for God, how can he keep his people as a people for God? So now comes the low. God takes the kingdom away from Solomon at the end of his life. He raises up adversaries against him. And soon after Solomon's death, the kingdom splits. Israel to the north and Judea to the south. And the infamous cycle of troublesome kings comes about. Solomon reigns for 40 years. And we believe that Ecclesiastes is written in the twilight of his life. An account of a man who pursued wisdom and pursued every endeavor he desired. And at the end of his life says, it's all vanity. It is meaningless. And that in some ways he's no better than the foolish man because good and bad fall on them both. The message and tone of the book strongly suggests that Solomon, at the end of his life, has done a massive amount of self-reflection and knows that he has failed to do what God asked him. And because of that, all that he achieved is meaningless. The only thing that matters is keeping to the statutes and commandments given by God. Reading this book, it reminded me of a scene from the Gilmore Girls revival and when Emily is attending her final DAR meeting, sitting there, and she finally breaks. She finally, I'm not going to use the word she said. You can watch it. She finally has had enough and says, I cannot do with another minute of this vanity and artifice. Again, she uses a different word, but nonetheless, we shall persist. And I return to the question of why. Why did God give Solomon wealth and fame and riches only for it to end like this? More so, why do we get a glimpse of this brief shining moment in the history of God's people? Why contradict Deuteronomy 17? It's disheartening to see him come to this reckoning, but I actually believe there is some reason behind it that brings us back to our text in 1 Kings 3. Solomon's request for wisdom, discernment, and understanding to guide God's people. Well, the fullness of wisdom is not without heartbreak and not without failure. 
And I suspect that God gave Solomon all he asked for and all he didn't so that he would understand what is and what isn't worth having. I suspect he would not have been able to attain the full measure of wisdom without the understanding that wealth and power and fame were meaningless. Artist and comedian Jim Carrey has a very famous quote. I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they could see it's not the answer. Oh, there's a heaviness to that end, but I, I don't believe that God set Solomon up for failure or is setting us up for failure. I, I rather think God is setting Solomon towards God's self. So when I did my original study on this text a few years ago, I, I wondered if this conclusion, the, the Jim Carrey quote that I had come to, I was like, ah, perhaps this is the next step. If fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, maybe this is a middle or an ending. And ironically, I don't know that it's either. But here's the funny thing. I think the more we seek the end, the more we only end up coming back to the beginning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And is that not the way of God? To bring us back to the beginning? To set us on the path of reconciliation and redemption? And the whole movement of God throughout scripture is a movement to bring us back, to bring us back to shalom, to bring us back to God. So for a brief shining moment in Solomon's reign, we see God situated in the highest place, installed in the temple among his people, accessible to them, and the moment passes almost before we can turn the page. And I invite us to consider this story just as it is, just as it is for a moment, before we try to place ourselves within it. We may only get a glimpse of what this moment in history was like, but what we are left with is a tradition of wisdom literature that paints a full and vibrant picture and leaves us with an understanding of the cost of it all. It's a picture that is both beautiful and terrifying, but it is a full picture, almost a full life unto itself. So for the past few months of my life, I've had um, an interesting opportunity I've, to travel, um, to stay and spend time with family, with friends. And this journey for me began with death. Shortly after the storms that hit our city, our, our state, in February, shortly after losing uh, my, my longtime cat companion. And so the only thing I could do at that time was follow my gut, follow my instinct, which told me to move, told me to go, told me to stop staying still. And like any journey, it contains this movement, this high and this low that kept coming about. I mean, there's something about being on a mountain in Colorado and then going down to the beaches of Florida, about 
spending weeks on end with your best friend who you've known for years, and also reuniting with friends who I hadn't seen in many, many years. But between my visits, my visits home were marked by either deep periods of disconnection or massive spurts of creativity, and the constant nagging question, how do I find connection in a world that feels so deeply divided and so deeply disconnected? What makes a home, my home, a home when I don't feel connected to the things that should build the content of my life? My friends, we live in very strange times. And for many of us, it can often feel like the next existential crisis is just right around the corner. And I ponder all this while moving from place to place, coming back and forth, and then I read Ecclesiastes on top of that, and it's no walk in the park. It was sobering, to say the least. But as I reflect on Solomon's journey and my own, I'm left with Ecclesiastes 9, 7 through 9. It says, Go, eat your bread with enjoyment. Drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has long ago approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Do not let oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife or husband who you choose. I lost my place, sorry. All the days of your vain life that are given to you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil and at which you toil under the sun. So to say that I traveled all over the country just to realize that my home was right here all along is a little too neat and tidy for for my melancholic temperament. But I can say this. You can't always get what you want. But you can get what you need. My journey started with saying goodbye to my longtime cat companion. And yesterday, I said hello to two new baby cat companions. A lovely roundness to complete what has been a harrowing chapter. I carry my own tale of going out and coming back again, and in the same time, to be happy with my life and my portion, I'll have to admit, it sounds pretty good right about now. So Vox, with that, I invite us to ponder this moment, consider the highs and the lows, and how we seek to hold them in tandem. What is God revealing to you? As we seek to do the work of our little lives, may we not lose sight of the one who imbues the journey with purpose and meaning, and rest assured that at the end of the story, no matter what it is, it is one that will bring us back to the beginning, back to God, the source of all kings and all wisdom who desires nothing more than to be among his holy people.